Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through his word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grace Pod, and we're in the Bible overview at Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And all that was beautiful last week when God made the world, we're about to see the grim mixture of good and bad that we see all around us today. Yeah, and I guess it's very practical in terms of what how we view our world. There's um, this whole issue of what has gone wrong in our world is kind of the framework that everyone works with. So if you think the problem in society is ignorance, then you pour all your energy into education, or if it's oppressive leadership, then you go for common ownership uh, and so on. And the Bible helps us by right at the beginning tell us, telling us what has really gone wrong so that we can put all our uh, focus and energy into what the true solution is. Now, I guess people think of Genesis 3 as the place that things go wrong, but we're starting at Genesis chapter 2. And that's because in the structure of these chapters, chapter 2 and 3 belong together so that we get a before and after a compare and contrast. Um, do you want to talk us through the structure of how this works on the sort of hinge in the middle? Yes, um, I think this has really helped me understand why chapter two is there. So when you there's sort of a, an ordering where the characters get introduced one by one, creation of man, that's verses four to 17, creation of woman, 18 to 25, then the t- serpent and his temptations. But then in the order, in the reverse order, you then get them exiting the scene. So um, at the other end, there's a punishment of the serpent, punishment of the woman, punishment of the man. Um, and the, when you notice that kind of symmetry, it focuses you in on the middle of the story and it shows you that all of chapter two is leading up to a, a particular moment and all of chapter three is leading out of that particular moment. And that means, I guess, we read chapter two, not just as a description of some kind of Eden paradise, although it is that, but we read it as a description of the thing that was lost. So I'm, I haven't read John Milton's Paradise Lost I just know the title but it seems like a fitting title as in chapter two is beautiful in in precisely the ways that chapter three is ugly so well let's go through them in order I mean the first thing that we get in chapter two is um, life so the Lord formed the man of dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath breath of life and the man became a living creature and the last thing to happen in chapter three is death and those awful words that we hear at every funeral, from dust you are, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. Hmm. So at the beginning, God takes man from dust, and he becomes living. But at the end, because of the fall and the and the, the ruin that sin's made of it, uh, God consigns man back to the dust. And so, as Romans 5 says, death came into the world through sin. Um, it's hard to think, isn't it, that death is not natural because we're so used to it that we describe, you know, it's part of a natural process and so on. He died of natural causes. But in a sense, people only ever die of very unnatural causes. It's not part of our created nature that we should be mortal. I always think if you had a thesaurus in the first century, uh, not the first century, the first ever century, right back in Eden, then the synonym for man should be immortal. We talk about we mere mortals, but it should be we mere immortals. But then death has come in and spoiled life. So that that's the that's the first blessing and and the last curse, life to death. Um, then next we get work. Do you want to talk us about work? Yeah. So Adam is given a 
um, a particular commission um, and he's put in the garden. It's not the whole world is, is equal. He, he's put in one land called Eden, one corner of that where there's a garden. But there's this, um, it's a sense that there's stuff to explore just beyond. So four rivers go out, there's there's gold and, and jewels just if you head down the river. Um, so it, it's a really tantalising picture of um, how he's going to heavenize the earth. He's going to bring what God has shown him in one corner of the earth and, and uh, kind of expand it uh, everywhere else. Just an aside, we saw the same thing last week, didn't we? That the beginning of the Bible is only the beginning. So even Eden isn't the, the final state. As you say, it's a, there's a whole world to be subdued and, and ruled over. And this is a little corner and then he starts there. So it really is the starting point rather than the finished article. Yeah, and he has access to the tree in verse 9. So uh, we, we think of, um, you know, the, the thing that he isn't allowed to do and we'll come on to that. But basically it's a world full of potentiality and access to this incredible gift of the tree of life. Um, and that is, as we come to the end of the passage, what he then gets excluded from when he's exiled from the garden. Um, his work seems a joy at the start. So what a privilege to be, <clears throat> what we saw last week, to be in God's image was to have dominion, to be a little ruler. And so I don't particularly like gardening, but if your job is to garden the whole world <clears throat> and rule the whole world, that this is a wonderful thing. But then again, by chapter three, work has been spoiled. So in chapter three, excuse me, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground so it's it's and this is true of course many people in the world that even to have enough food to eat is toilsome and burdensome and you farm and the land isn't very productive and um, agriculture is is tough and what's become what was joyful is now burdensome i guess i mean it does explain work doesn't it because it's the mixture of the two you wouldn't say work is just only awful because there's still some sort of dignity and enjoyment occasionally about of vacations but no one has a job where it's not touched by the futility and frustration of things going wrong and the world being against us so I guess it's a in all of these cases there's an original good that hasn't been snuffed out it's just been frustrated and twisted so human life is still a wonderful thing but it's just a temporary wonderful thing and death and disease spoils it work is still a noble thing but it's a frustrated spoiled noble thing and you were commenting on how it's not just work, but something about the whole created order is put out of kilter. And you were saying beforehand why that's a significant thing for us to grasp. Well, I I find the verse in Romans 8 really helpful, which actually is, I think, commenting on this. And Paul in Romans is talking about how we're longing for a better future. And Christians are longing for that. And creation's longing for that. And he talks about creation groaning um, and uh, he says it's groaning because of the one who subjected it to futility in hope. So somebody came along to creation and made it made creation's life really hard. <laughs> so he made all the trees sort of groan and all the animals groan and 
um, I guess the tectonic plates growing everything about the cos the cosmos is is put out of um, kilter in hope so the person who did this did this temporarily um, so that everything would long for a day when it was all fixed and and then you ask the question who is it who is it that did this who subjected the creation to futility and the answer must be um, God, God did because in the context of Genesis 3 where Paul is referring to God says cursed is the ground because of you and I think just as this has profound implications for the environmental concerns that we all feel right now so why is the world in a mess it's not fundamentally because of we were too greedy with fossil fuels or we didn't recycle sufficiently or we put too much plastic in the ocean and I'm not saying by the way that Christians shouldn't care about these things we ought to be good stewards of the of the creation but fundamentally the reason it's gone wrong is because God's made it go wrong as his judicial response to human evil it's his punishment on the world and the um, sometimes you get accusations uh, from atheists as to why we couldn't possibly believe in God because, and they point to something like cancer in children or uh, parasites in the human eye. And um, sometimes Christians are stumped and they they think, oh, well, yeah, actually that does point to the fact that we don't live in a good world. Things um, God kind of made a good world in the beginning. But I think that's to to give away too much because the point of Genesis 3 is that this isn't the world we experience now isn't the world that God originally made for us and so actually we we have a very good reason to explain why there are it, there are parasites in eyes this whole created order is now um, against us and I think that mixture of beauty and twistedness only Genesis chapter 1 to 3 explains because if you're an atheist and you just think this is the way the world turned out by accident after the big bang then there's no explanation for why we have this sense within us that it ought to be better than it is you just go it just is like this but every human has a feeling of disappointment with the world or frustration you know this ought to be so beautiful but it's not quite as beautiful as it must be or I mean, the the reason that suffering, I think, disappoints us is if we only believe in Darwinism, I mean, survival of the fittest, you think this is pure progress. This is the way that, that, that human life was created by death. and But we don't feel that about death. We think this is wrong and this is an intrusion. And it all points to the fact that we, we have some sort of memory of a, a world as it should be, Genesis 2, and yet the experience of that world corrupted, Genesis 3. I mean, I think just think this matches our experience and reality and the atheist account just does, doesn't, can't account for it. Hmm. So if we're making progress through the introduction of all these good things, the, the creation of man and work, should we hit the creation of women next, 18 to 25? Well, the, I mean, the big contrast is he's really chuffed that he's got a wife. Um, I mean, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. He, Adam is full of praise for Eve. But then in chapter three, he starts blaming and arguing about Eve. So to God, the woman you put with me, she caused me to do this. From praise to blame, that's quite mm. a, a switch in one day. This passage is obviously really foundational for understanding the relationship between male and female um, and understanding marriage as it should be, but also understanding marriage as it's gone wrong and the battle between the sexes as they've gone wrong. Yeah, so one of the things, if we only had chapter one, the thing we would discover about male and female is 
that we are both equally dignified as image bearers, equally given a commission. Um, if we only had chapter two, I think that the emphasis is uh, more on the asymmetry. And actually, I um, we did a whole session on a bite-sized theology looking at, I think, at least um, 10 ways in which Adam and Eve's roles are contrasted um, in these chapters two and three. But there's lots that's really different about them. Um, and I think we, as Christians, we need to hold both chapter one, men and women are equal, and chapter two, men and women are different and deliberately different. So we really enjoyed Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church, and that helps a lot. And then you uh, listened to some stuff by Alistair Roberts on this as well. Do you give us just a taste of it? We can't do the whole thing now, but just to whet people's appetite if they want to go and hear that bite-sized theology episode. Well, some of the distinctions are w- that we've already said, that man was made first, he was made from the earth and put into the garden. The woman was made from the man within the garden. Uh, he's commissioned with this sort of priestly function in chapter 215 to work and keep it. She's created, we're told, to be a helper in 2.18 to bring communion and life. Um, God speaks to the man first, both before the fall and after the fall. But the serpent comes to the woman first, trying to disrupt that. Uh, The man gets cursed in his labour. The woman gets cursed uh, not in the labour of the ground, but in the labour of childbearing. I could go go on and on, but the um, the the point is that both in our created roles and in our now cursed roles, um, there is an, an asymmetry, and that explains the world we live in and and how we're to, as we in Christ try and live out uh, afresh that the roles that we were originally called to, and the the twisting of the roles um, in chapter two verse sorry chapter three verse sixteen. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's a very unpleasant kind of asymmetry. So um, the the way in which the, um, the the man domineers his wife, and I guess a lot of our culture is a reaction to the way women have been mistreated by domineering men. But then one of the big cries in our culture was, wouldn't it be better than to eliminate the differences between the sexes altogether? And the answer is no. There's there's a beautiful original asymmetry that isn't that twisted, ugly. There's a way for women to flourish um, without being crushed by men, but without being equivalent to men. Like, to women to flourish as women and to men to flourish as men. And, yeah, we... I mean, all the way around us, we see the carnage of the way that, again, the fall has twisted and distorted this. And such a role for churches and for Christian families to proclaim, I think, in terms of, you know, hearing something on a or reading something in an article or hearing it in a podcast um, is one thing. But when you see uh, men and women actually living God's way in a church or in a family, that's a, a really strong commendation of, of how this really is, does work. It's not um, the, the, the fundamental reality in the world is not power. It's not about everything. Every interaction isn't just a zero sum gain, but for the Christian, there's something called love and a, a self-giving so marriage isn't 50 50 it's Mm. all that i am on both sides and it creates something very different and very beautiful uh there's so much more we could say about this i mean it is such an important chapter in the bible for understanding male and female and if you want more details do search out our bite-sized theology uh, podcast on this on male and female men and women 
But uh, we're just working our way towards the centre of these chapters and we're seeing that everything that's good in chapter two gets reversed. Well, not reversed, but at least marred or spoiled in chapter three. So from the dust to the dust, praise for women, uh, sorry, dignified work, troublesome, toilsome work, praise for the woman, um, blame for the woman. Then we get nakedness is the next level in. So the man and his woman, the man, his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. But straight away after the fall, the first thing that they notice is they're naked and they hide. And this isn't a call to for Christian naturism, but there's something about nakedness which is exposing. And I guess that's why everyone has the dream about being naked in public when they're a teenager. <laughs> yeah, the, the nightmare about that. Um, we, we are afraid to be naked I guess except if we're children because of innocence or in an intimate relationship a marriage relationship because of intimacy but with God at this point the innocence has gone and the intimacy has gone and so the instinct is to hide there's this shame now and I think that's something quite profound as well in terms of the not wanting to be seen for who we are and what we've done yeah and it's very interesting that even before God gives his judgments, there's some automatic results of sin, if you can put it that way. The, the alienation and the fig trees, the, the separation from God, the fear and the hiding, the discord. Um, th- there's an immediate effect even before God intervenes with the, the curses and judgments. And I think we, they, they ring true for us. We know what happens. We know what guilt feels like. It, it, and um, this account makes sense of... Uh, our own experience so we've seen uh paradise lost and i guess the obvious question is well what went wrong so let's go right into the heart of the passage that the hinge if you like in chapter three where we discover how the whole world was wrecked yeah and um interestingly it's an attack uh, from an enemy from outside uh, the serpent and it's an attack specifically on um the word of god and I guess we hinted at this last week um, that Genesis 1 is a really significant intro passage for what's happening in this passage. Um, can you just help us on that? Well, Genesis 1, God said, and it was so, and God saw, and it was good. And we kept getting that repeated. And we said last week that it, this isn't just that God says good things, but which he does, but that God enjoys it when the creation matches what he says. And here we've got that Satan's attacking that very truth. You know, is it is it really good what God said? And are you sure you really want to live your lives in line with what God said? So those terrible words of Satan, did God really say? And he, he misquotes God, you know, um, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? God certainly didn't say that. He gave them all of the trees to enjoy uh, of their incredible variety of fruit and and. Um, different tastes and things but um he did say there was one tree that you mustn't eat of and so eve um reminds satan of that and again slightly she slightly misremembers you you may you may eat from every tree in the garden but of the tree in the middle of the garden you must not eat and you must not touch it again god wasn't that strict he didn't say don't touch it he said just don't eat it but um the question is was god's word good was god's command good and actually, it was the the first promise in the Bible. So God said things that have happened, but the first promise was a warning. If you eat of this tree, then on the day you eat it, you will surely die. 
And then Satan flat out denies that you will not surely die. So he's basically saying God's word is not true. It's harsh. It's strict. Um, and the consequences that God threatened, he's just bluffing. You'll be fine. And there's a sort of sense in which every sin we fall for, every time we fall for temptation, it's the same one. That, that Satan's got a playbook which is very effective, um, but very tired and old. And he just keeps banging on the same thing. You know, whatever the particular temptation is, oh, well, God's trying to hold you back. He's not good. He doesn't want your best. The best life you could have is is going against what God says. Um, and God won't do anything. There's no real consequence. It's we we it's just um, in some ways a bit depressing that that we fall for the same lie again and again. But it is um, yeah we see it uh, so clearly here that this is um, what we all face. Romans chapter one summarizes it, doesn't it? That they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's a, it's an undoing of everything. If God's word was true, and God, well, God's word is true, but God's word was the foundation of reality, we switch that for a lie, which is the undermining of reality. If God was the ruler, and then humans, and then we were supposed to rule over the serpent, over the cr- created things, that's been reversed. So now an animal is telling a man what to do, he's telling God what to do. So everything has been switched on its head i've just looked at the time Andrew, and we're getting carried away because there's so much to say we ought to draw towards a close should we talk about that final sort of irony of what is offered by satan and why it's so perverse yeah and we thought in chapter one about this extreme dignity you um we're made in god's image nothing in creation is as like god as we are and then the temptation comes you will be like god which Adam should have laughed with a belly laugh and saying, you don't realise I could not be more like God. And and the, the terrible irony is that he he became less like God that day. So he became more like a beast of the field. He returned to the dust. Um, and there's little that's less God-like than becoming part of the dust. Um, and so it was a terrible lie at every level. It, it didn't, the serpent promised something which really didn't deliver. This little phrase of knowing good and evil, that's what Satan promises. It was a bit tricky one to understand because it can't mean to experience good and evil. Like you've, So far, you've only tried good, try the other side because he says, like God, knowing good and evil, and God doesn't ever do evil. But I think later in the Bible, the phrase um, gets picked up again in when Solomon is becoming king and God says, you know, what would you like me to give you? And Solomon says, I'd really like wisdom so that I would know good and evil. And in the context there, it's... If I'm going to be the king, I'm going to have to make decisions and and judgments and I want to get them right. So knowing good and evil, it's kind of about being able to rule the world and make correct judgments about the world, which again is ironic because that is the, the, the vocation that God gave to man. But Satan's sort of offering it, he's offering the counterfeit version of what God himself wants to give. And I think we see that it's just like with the temptations of Jesus when Jesus reruns this story. And Satan says to Jesus, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus is like, I am the, I'm the heir to this already. You know, I am, I am the king. But the way in which I'm going to inherit is by obedience to my father's word, which will involve obedience to death on the cross. And then he'll exalt me and I'll have all this. And Satan says, I'll, I'll give you the same thing or the fake version of it. Yeah. And one of the, um, the we've been dwelling on the, sadness and tragedy of this affair but it it ends well it has this um 
um, note of hope within it as well, which we mustn't miss, because one of the points of having a realistic view of what's happened in our world is so that we set our hope correctly. Do you want to help us with um, 3.15? People have called this the um, the first mention of the gospel. I think arguably it's not, because um, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that marriage itself is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church as Christ lays himself down for the church. So yeah, and we can argue about where, where the gospel first comes in the Bible. But it certainly is a little mention of the gospel. So um, Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Uh, this speaks of a basically mortal battle between a human and Satan. And both of them, well, the hint is both of them are going to die. So the way in which a human kills a serpent is by stamping on its head. The way a serpent um, usually attacks a human is by striking it with its venom, but it hits your ankle because it's down on the ground. So here's a battle where the human's going to receive a mortal blow and the serpent's going to receive a mortal blow. And of course, we can see what that might refer to, a battle to the death between Jesus and Satan where Jesus is going to die as a result of the battle. But the serpent also will be destroyed as part of the battle. And then P.S. Jesus is resurrected and becomes the ruler and the new Adam over a renewed creation. Yeah, and um, it's a great thing that on the same day that God tells us all these terrible things, he says that, don't worry, this uh, watch this space. There's, there's a glorious ending to this story, and that's our hope. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. We got a bit carried away, so we're a bit longer than usual. Do join us next time if you can. Um, we'll be looking at Noah and the flood um, and, again, some ways in which this historical event has profoundly shaped our present reality. Um, nice to see you and, well, see you. You can't see us. You can hear us. Nice for you to hear us. And uh, we'll be back next time. Thank you for listening to Grace Pod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.